Hello and welcome to this episode of the Clean Bill of Wealth podcast. I'm your host, Galen Nuttall. And as always, this is the spot where I interview people who are out to enhance the lives of physicians, especially in Canada. This is where I talk to people around about such topics such as health, wealth, relationships, well-being, side hustles, practice management, and much more. Now, there are a few big changes that I want to make sure you are aware of. So first off, as always, you can head on over to galenhelpsdocs.com. That's G-A-L-E-N helpsdocs.com to sign up for the financial literacy challenge I've created, a series of videos and a worksheet uh, where I tackle big questions I get around finances, like how to make the most of the medicine professional corporation, what are the different types of insurance and investments I should be looking at in Canada, and then pitfalls I see around retirement planning in Canada. So head on over for that. And once you do sign up for that, you'll be on my mailing list and you'll be the first to know when I have a new episode out or when I have a new whiteboard video out where I'm making complex financial concepts simple. Now, big news, if you do have on over the site, you're going to see that there's a new button there where you can book a free, no strings attached consult with me. That's for anyone who's saying, look, Galen, I love the idea of your videos. I love the idea of the workbook. I'm not sure I'm going to find time for all that. I just have one big burning question I'd love answered, or I want some of your time to answer these questions. Head on over there. If you want to get in touch with me, if you want to spend some time and ask me a question, be sure to head on over there and book a spot. Last big, big announcement, huge one. I have started recording masterclass sessions with my guests. So we are covering amazing topics such as how to start a side business quickly, important concepts around money mindset, and much more. And those videos are only available when you sign up for the challenge. There's a section in there in the membership site was the masterclass series. So when you get to the end of an episode and you hear me talking about the masterclass session that I'm about to film with the the guest, that's where you're going to find it. So thanks so much for tuning in for these updates and on with the show. Welcome everyone to this episode of A Clean Bill of Wealth. Today I am ho- I am joined by Dr. Anna Blake. Uh, Anna Blake is up to some amazing stuff. So Dr. Blake is a family physician in rural Canada and a life coach with anti-fragile female MD. And Dr. Blake specializes in physician burnout, perfectionism, and overwhelm. And one of my favorite things on your website is how to... I don't remember the exact wording, but it's like how to overcome imposter syndrome. And that's what you help female physicians do. So welcome so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's super exciting to be here. You know, it's funny because you just asked me a moment ago, what is one thing I want to make sure we cover? And I was like, let's do it super organic. But I realized when you started to say the name of my business, that the one thing I really do want to cover is why it's called the anti-fragile female MD, because there are, um, Sometimes people read the name of my business and don't have never heard the term anti-fragility before and don't know what it means. And so this is super cool actually to apply to um, the concept of finances and also to apply to the concept of just how we approach our life as human beings, um, especially as you know, physicians who deal with a lot of challenging things. So what anti-fragility is, the concept was coined by um, a guy named Nassim Talib, who is an author. He's he's a uh, like a philosopher and he wrote this cool book. And you know, essentially what anti-fragility is, is it's something that so it's it's like a step beyond resilient or robust. So for resilient or robust, we can withstand the storm when the storms come. Okay. But if we're anti-fragile, we actually get better because the storm came. We figure out how to take the challenge. So it's the property of a system to 
thrive in the face of challenge. So he talks a lot about this in terms of economics, which is really cool. And I don't know a whole lot about that whole part of the economics. It's certainly not not my specialty. But in learning about this concept, I really started to realize that this is effectively what happened to me in my life as I learned how to thrive as a result of the challenges I faced. So when I named my business, I got this idea that I was going to create this burnout um, recovery and prevention program for female physicians after I had my own experience. And I'm like, this is literally what I've done with my life, right? I've taken this really awful, challenging experience that I had that almost cost me my life. And I have made it something that I now go out there in the world and I help other people recover from these kind of experiences. Like my life is way better. My relationship with myself is way better than it ever was before. So that's the one thing I really wanted to say. <laughs> I like it. Cause you weren't sure what, you weren't sure there was anything that you wanted to make no, sure you said. And then it's like, boom, <laughs> right off the bat. Well, I really love that because I mean, I think it is important because I think it could be confusing to hear the term anti-fragile or what does that mean? Or, you know, and I, I definitely, here in the physician wellness space of, you know, resilience is sometimes seen as like, you know, I've definitely heard the conversation of if the system looked different, we wouldn't have to be as resilient or if the system looked different, we wouldn't have as much burnout. And what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is really this anti-fragile concept is like you said, resilience is like toughness in face of something where it sounds like what you're helping promote is the idea of transformation or growth through something that's happened or something that's going on, like seeing it from a different angle. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, one of the biggest reasons why I do that is because, you know, I think um, in having worked with a lot of female physicians, and I've been down this road myself, I think when we look at the system and all the systemic problems that we face, we can often fall into this trap of frustration and anger. And, and especially if we, if we go down the road as far as burnout is we become kind of apathetic. Um, you know, there's this depersonalization piece, right? There's this detachment from it all. And I don't think that when we're in that place, we have any ability to try to change the systems, to try to change the external things. I think we need to be in a place of empowerment if we really want to start to tackle these giants, if we want to start to speak up. I think that's the that's what has plagued physicians for so long is that we are we generally are so burdened with work. We're so busy doing it, right? And we're just like nose to the grindstone, get it done. Or we're in this state of like perpetual anger and frustration, or we're, you know, all the way down to the road of apathy that um, we, we tend to not be in our best negotiating power, in our best, mm. you know, power to affect change from that place. So, you know, I think we have to address the inside job piece to find the part of us that can address the outside job. So I think both are incredibly important, but I don't look at it as the physician has to change. I look at it as, can we choose to change ourselves so that we find the best version of ourselves in the journey Hmm. to be able to bring the best version of ourselves to the table? I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, that that does make sense. Like, and I think it, it's almost like a chicken and egg kind of thing. Like there's the system and then there's the people that make up the system. And if everyone in the system is burnt out, how are they going to help affect change in the system? And so it sounds like it's a very um, like cohesive idea mm-hmm. of like approach to it. And one of the things I can't help but ask is like to get specific 
are you do you share openly what it is that you went through to kind of discover this anti-fragility approach to things and if you could share that with us because i think that yeah, I do. could be yeah. powerful yeah i like to talk about real talk and some hard stuff and so i'm going to give it i'm going to give a trigger warning that um i i speak about physician suicide when i speak because there is an epidemic of physician suicide um, I don't have the numbers for Canada, but in the U.S., 300 to 400 physicians a year die by suicide, which is like one medical school class. Um, that is the cost. That's the toll of working in medicine. And the numbers are worse for female physicians. Um, I know I have, I don't, I don't want to misquote, but the statistic for um, physician, female physician suicides um, when compared with the general population, I believe it's about double the risk of dying by wow. suicide. It could be even higher than that. Um, I'll look it up and I'll share it with you so you sure. can share it in your show notes. But um, it's it's really it's really a terrible terrible problem. Um, and so you know my journey. Um, I will also share in case anybody listening to this. Um, is feeling this way and needs to know where to get help. There are suicide hotlines in Canada. There's a physician health program in every single province and territory for physicians who need it. Um, so I highly, highly, highly suggest to people who are suffering to reach out and ask for help. It can be a really scary thing to do, um, especially when we're in medicine, but there are places that we can get help and we can get it um, anonymously. We can get it um, in ways where, uh, you know, it's not going to affect our career. We don't have to go to a colleague. Um, so, you know, I just want to encourage people to get help if you're feeling that way, because it wasn't until I got help in my journey that I was able to start to figure some of these things out and get my life pointed in the direction that I needed to get it pointed. So, you know, what this looked like for me was um, I had, so, you know, I, I started out as a rural family physician. I started out doing a little bit of everything. I didn't do emerge, but I did 24 seven obstetrical call inpatient call palliative care, um, looking after long-term care patients, um, doing house calls. So I just did a little bit of everything. And I very much believed that I had to do all of these things in order to be, um, seen as a woman in medicine as, um, being a good doctor. And so, you know, it was the expectation that I put on myself, I had to work even harder to be seen um, and be respected. And I got a lot of external validation from looking after people through all these different walks of life. But it gradually began to chip away at me and what was important to me in my life. And it became significantly more profound when I had my first daughter. Um, when I was on maternity leave and I wasn't working as a physician, I realized how much my identity was tied up in being a doctor and how much I was missing that part of my life. And then I went back and being a parent and being a doctor was incredibly challenging for me to be both of those things at the same time. And suddenly this thing that previously was really amazing for me in my life was not amazing anymore. Mm -hmm. It was like incredibly difficult. There were mount, you know, mountains and mountains and mountains of paperwork building up. And I would ask my colleagues, like, what can I do to improve the situation? We'd had some major changes in our practice. Um, and people would make suggestions to me, but they weren't suggestions that really felt like they were going to actually help. And I began to interpret all that information as like, I didn't belong in medicine anymore. I shouldn't be doing this anymore. Like I couldn't hack it. 
And at the time, I was dealing with some mental health struggles myself. Um, I'd had postpartum depression. And when all of these things kind of came to a head in my life, um, I dealt with probably for the better part of a year suicidal thoughts. But I reached this point where I realized that I I couldn't see my life. It felt like there was nothing left for me anymore. I couldn't see my life um, getting any better. And I felt like the walls were just kind of closing in slowly, slowly, slowly. And so, you know, I got all my affairs in order and I made a plan that I was going to commit suicide. And I had this fortuitous moment where I saw my daughter's face and she would have been maybe 18, 19 months at this time. And I saw her face and I remembered that I I wanted to see her one more time. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment when I decided like I was going home and I was going to just, I was going to just live this one more day, one more day at a time. Right. And so that actually is the moment shortly after that, where I reached out to a physician coach who you've had on your podcast before, oh, wow. Sarah Smith. I okay. reached out to her because I'd seen her have post something in this Canadian physician mom's Facebook group. I'd seen her post something and I was like, well, maybe she can help me figure out how to get the job manageable again. Because if I can start there, if I'm going to start to rebuild all these pieces of my life, I need to start to feel like something is getting better. And I was doing lots of other mental health things to help me deal with, with my the illness part of my experience. But where I was left was, what do I do with this practice? How do I make sure that I can, I can make my practice something that's going to work for me where I'm not constantly on this treadmill and feeling like I'm never going to catch up again, right? Yeah. So, um, so from that point on, I started getting coaching and big, big changes started to happen in my life. It very much accelerated the process of recovery because I started to understand how my human brain was working and how it was getting in my way. And then I was able to start to dismantle some of those beliefs that I had that were getting in my way. And eventually fast forward, you know, in six months, I realized like, this is so freaking amazing. I can't not tell other people about this. And that's how I became a coach. So that's, wow. that's the long version, but I, I think it's really important to talk about because, um, you know, we struggle in silence, like another piece of data from studies of physicians, um, physician, mental health and physician, uh, suicide is that when many, many, many physicians experience suicidal thoughts, um, I don't remember the number. And when we do, like something like 80 to 90% isolate. Don't tell anybody Mm. that they're feeling this way. And so nobody knows. And as a whole, physicians are very productive, very high functioning individuals. And so we can look like really, really productive. We can get away with being in a really bad place and still show up and still get the job done because we just are so hardwired to do that. And so I think that's why, I think that's why it's like these, these things just happen suddenly, right? It's like suddenly a physician is dead and nobody knew that they were in, in that dark of a place. Nobody knew it was going to happen. It's just suddenly it happened. Um, And so, you know, I do this work because not because I think coaching is the cure for suicidality in physicians. I want to be really clear about that. I think we need our mental health care system to take care of us when we're sick. But what I found in my own journey is that my progress with getting all of these other problems in my life 
um, figured out came when I started to learn how to understand how my human brain was functioning mm-hmm. and how to get it functioning for me rather than against me. Got it. So first off, thank you for sharing that because that's a very powerful, um, yeah, like I find that I definitely fall into this sort of trap or belief that like if a physician, physicians have it all figured out, like, and I do know, like, I mean, my dad's a physician, so I grew up, like, I'd ask my dad a question. My dad would rarely say, I don't know. He'd always be like, well, let's figure this out. You know, it was never like, I don't know. And I mean, I don't I joke with some people about how that maybe is like a, a training thing of like, you don't want to admit you don't know, or you don't want to. So, I mean, so I definitely fall into that. And so, like, I mean, I really appreciate you sharing that because that's a very powerful, um, yeah, definitely um, a powerful story around what you were facing and how you got how you got some help and definitely like that, you know, understand first off, like reaching out. Like I know I downloaded your, the guide that you have on your website. And I know that one of them was like to face what's, what's happening. Like, I can't remember which number, but it was like, just, just like, like see what's actually happening and like own up to the breakdown that's occurring in your life. And I do know that like I, myself, when I go through life pretending everything's okay and I don't voice that breakdown or I don't voice that thing that's not going well, it doesn't help anything by not voicing it. And I oftentimes get stuck in, I'm going to figure all this out myself. I'm going to figure out what's wrong. I'm going to figure out why I feel this way. But as soon as I reach out to someone, and in my case, I do have coaches in my life, like it, it's so much faster when someone else is there on, the, on my side of the table, helping me look at things. And I really love what you've said about figuring out the human brain and how it works. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, thank you for sharing us, like sharing with us why you're so passionate about what you do and why physician burnout is so important to you. And so how, I mean, I guess the next thing I'd really like to know is, and you mentioned it, like when people are in that zone, they can feel like there's no, it's, this is the way it is. Like, there's no way out of this, like that, you know, you even mentioned at a logistical level in your office, like mountains of paperwork, like this is just the way it is. And some of the generic advice you were getting wasn't really going to solve the problem. So I'd love to know, like, where does where do you start with someone when you're working with someone and helping them um, helping them with this? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's funny because um, you know when the, this process doesn't look the same for any particular person, right? When when we do this, but um, I think that you really uh, struck on something that's super important when you mentioned in the. Um, I can't even remember what I called it either, but it's like 10 steps to overcoming physician burnout for female doctors or something like that. It's okay, called, but, yeah, the, the top 10 ways to survive burnout for yeah. female MDs. So it's it, the, so many people that I work with are like, I can't be burned out because I know somebody else who's got it worse than me. Or I'm, you know, I haven't been in medicine long enough to be burned out. Or like, aren't you supposed to get burned out when you're like 20 years and I'm not even five years into my career, right? So there's a, there's a systemic denial of burnout in medicine. So one of the first steps I take with my clients is just to like gently help them understand how the elements of burnout. So, you know, burnout has these three characteristics when when we define burnout. So emotional exhaustion is one of them. And depersonalization is the second one. And then the third one is this general sort of sense of feeling ineffective or, or like what we're doing isn't making a difference anymore. So many female physicians struggle with the emotional exhaustion component of burnout. And I think that 
we oftentimes can't see this. And it really overlaps a ton with compassion fatigue, which is basically where we it's the cost of caring for other people for so long that it just sort of fizzles out and we become kind of numb and unable to connect to human beings anymore. And so um, this is this is what happens, right? And, and so often we can't see it. So the first step I take with my clients is I help them to see really what is going on for them, right? I help them to like acknowledge it and to say like, you're not alone in this, right? Like there isn't something wrong with you because that's what our brains are programmed to do, right? Most of us have these harsh inner critics. We're perfectionists. Mm -hmm. So we just like judge ourselves. And, you know, what, what happened for me as I started doing this work with female doctors is I realized there's patterns of thinking, maladaptive patterns of thinking that are behind all of these things, right? So I have nicknamed them the female MD mind traps. And I call my online course overcoming the female MD mind trap, because I think, you know, they're, they're not things that are specifically unique to physicians, but I think they're really common in female physicians. And so I've started to, um, you know, to help my clients see which ones are, um, getting in their way and stopping them from achieving what they want to achieve in their life. So that's kind of the first step in the process that I take. And it's a profound one because sometimes just understanding the react, like understanding what we've been believing, mm. acknowledging it, we suddenly, when we shine light on it, it's like, you know, you turn on the light in your messy closet and you put a few things away and suddenly you're like, oh, the closet isn't all bad. Like there's nothing really wrong with this place. You know, I can, I can even hang out in here if I want, but like, I just needed to put a few things away and clean it up a little bit. Right. And turn the light on and not have it be like a dark and creepy place full of dust anymore. So that's how I kind of like in this first process of just like acknowledging what's there. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. And so it's, it sounds like it's a real, real uh, look at what's happening. Like kind of, it sounds like kind of taking away some of the judgment or taking away some of the emotion around it. It's just like, let's just look at what's actually happening. And I definitely, you know, I heard from what you said that you don't, you don't know if it was that they're not necessarily unique to physicians, but are some of the things that women, that females deal with. And it's really interesting because it's kind of hitting me all of a sudden. I've had uh, three um, different podcast guests. Um, a, a, a bit ago, I had a podcast guest. Her name is Eve Rodsky, and she wrote a book called Fair Play, which was all about the domestic imbalance in the average household where there's a man and a woman, you know, partnership. Usually men are not doing nearly as much as the woman is. And my wife read the book, recommended I read it very gently. She didn't like throw it at me or anything to her credit. And then I read it and I was like, man, I'm really being a jerk around the house, like just kind of letting a lot of these things fall on her. And the book is really great at going into why. Then a couple months ago, I interviewed Dr. Michelle Cohen, who talked about the gender uh, pay inequity in the House of Medicine in Canada, how female physicians make less than male physicians. And now you and I are talking <laughs> and about very specific um, burnout patterns to uh, female physicians. And so I think you've touched on it, but I can't help but ask, like, you know, what are some of the things that, you know, other things that you think are unique to, to, female, uh, to female physicians? And then like, what are those next steps that help manage um, that after you've seen what's going on? Like what, what comes next? And I know you said it's kind of unique to each person, but is there sort of a next general step to take? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, data that suggests that there's 
a mental load that women bear, a cognitive load of like thinking about all the things about how the house has to operate, how the finances have to operate, how, you know, the food is going to be prepared and, you know, are the appointments going to, you know, take place that the kids need and, you know, the, the sort of like higher level operational thinking and that there's just a toll of that, right. That's a burden that women tend to take on. And I think we're taught this in society. Right. And so, you know, when I talk about this female MD mind traps, they develop because of primarily three different things. One is the way we're raised. So what we're taught in our family of origin, right? The second one is what society teaches us about what it's supposed to be like to be a woman. And then the third one is what our training teaches us about what we're supposed to be like as female doctors. Mm-hmm. And so it's this these layers upon layers upon layers, right? Which lead to us all having these like super stringent sets of rules and beliefs and things that, you know, we think the world expects of us and things we feel obligated to do and things we're afraid that, you know, if we say something about these things, someone's going to judge us, we're going to get backlash. And and really it generally comes because we have evidence that that's true because we, mm. do, get, we do get backlash. We do get stuff like literally I was telling you before we started this interview that I coached a client last night who is experiencing some struggles with infertility. She's, she is a surgeon. She's a highly specialized physician. And a male colleague said to her in the middle of a busy clinic, don't trust her opinion on this. She's almost hormone things. Like as if it's at all okay to say yeah. something like that, but this is pervasive in medicine. And it's, it's the reason why these these struggles are here for women, right? And then you have stuff like the other thing we talked about before, right? Which I'm sure Michelle was probably talking about when she talked about the pay gap is that there was a study done not too long ago that showed that female physicians in Canada get 87 cents on the dollar and spend even more time with patients compared to males. So it's it's all because there are expectations, right? And as a female physician, if you cut a patient off, if you leave a room early, right, if you are like, you know, the time is up, then somebody, somebody is going to, you know, complain about you're going to get backlash from it. You're going to be seen as like, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Yeah, go for it. The bitchy, bitchy doctor, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember I, I'm one of the most stark um experiences that I've had in realizing this was as a trainee. So I came to the town I practiced in as a trainee and as a resident and my preceptor was male. And when I was working under him, one day a patient said to me, I'm so glad I got to see you today because I would never have told Dr. So-and-so, my mentor about this problem, a mental health problem. And I was like, why? Like what? He's trained to deal with a mental health problem. No, but patients have the assumption that the male doctor isn't going to be in. He was a lovely, like, this is no reflection of my preceptor. It's the patients had made the decisions. They weren't going to burden him with these things because he's busy. And, you know, he may not understand my, you know, the position that I'm in. Right. So it's fascinating how these societal dynamics factor into this and are so entwined. And so, you know, what is the next step that I take with my 
clients really, right? It's like, okay, first we get everything out there. We figure out what we're, what we're dealing with. Right. And then we start to see, like, do I want to keep, we start to ask ourselves powerful questions. So do I want to keep believing the things that I have been trained to believe the things that I've been taught by the world. Like, do I want to keep applying those rules for myself? And we start to just test it a little bit. So, you know, in my process, when I first started coaching, I think it was the very first session I ever had with Sarah. I came up with this new belief that I wanted to try, which was that I, it feels impossible, but I'm going to leave with my charts done Mm -hmm the end of the day, every day. And and really it was, I was going to actually finish the visit with my chart completed. So I wasn't going to like leave them all in a pile at the end and, you know, keep working for hours and hours and hours after I was done clinic, I was going to complete them in that visit with that patient. And interestingly, like, as I started to just ask myself, it was like recognizing that it felt impossible to me was like, honoring this is hard, right? Like it was just creating a space for me to be a bit resistant, but it was like, okay, it feels impossible, but what's, what's the risk then? If I've acknowledged that it's hard and I could fail, it could fall flat on my face. Why not just try? So that's what that belief opened up for me, right? So I start to just ask powerful questions to my clients and see what comes up for them that they do have existing in in the wiring of their brain. So I'm not like, let's go to some new belief that, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, it feels uh, like it's, I I can't connect to that at all. I could, in acknowledging that it felt impossible, I could create Mm -hmm. space for myself it to just be okay that like, I might not get this right, but I'm just going to try. And I already had this existing belief system that I could try things, right? Like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? It's just not going to work, right? And so so that's what I help people find. I help people find the things that already exist in their wiring and, like, hack it so that they can use it in wherever they're struggling. Yeah, I really like that. And I really like that because, I mean, it sounds um, it's similar to like an affirmation, but like there's that element of realism or like acknowledging where you're coming from first. Like, although it may sound impossible, I'm I'm going to finish every visit with the chart. Like, I'm, I'm going to finish the chart with the visit. And um, I love that because it's like acknowledging how it feels like it feels impossible, but I'm going to try it on. Uh, so that sounds really neat. Like you go to that step of trying on a new belief system or like rewiring that thought process. Exactly. And and to me, like, I think affirmations have a role, but to me, they are the next step beyond this in many ways. Okay. They're like the things we're aspiring to be at some point in our life. And so we're bringing them into our awareness to offer our brain the opportunity to start to integrate them into the wiring, but they're not in the wiring yet. That's that to me is the next step that we can go beyond this. We can decide to choose what we want to become the new way with which we're going to think about things. But that's what we do for the really, really hard ones that we're like, I don't know how to believe that yet, but I want to believe that, you know, I can be a doctor that gets home um, and doesn't work every evening, doesn't, you know, come home, make dinner, put my kids to bed and then go back to work for three hours every evening. I can be a doctor that takes Sundays off. This was one of the biggest pieces of work that I did in my own journey was I would tell myself I was going to take Sundays off after I had my kids and spend the day with my kids. 
but I would have this like internal tension and discomfort and anxiety about knowing there was work that needed Mm. to be done. And it was so uncomfortable for me that I couldn't be present. I'd be like trying to sneak in little ways or I'd be telling my husband, like, just go let me finish something for an hour. And then like three hours later, he's like knocking on the door, like, Hey, are you going to come outside and visit with us? Right. And so much, there was so much guilt about it, but there was so much anxiety when I wasn't doing the work that I was constantly in this like tension. Right. And so I had to actually train my brain to value work less, to value the achievement, to value the getting things done less. And, and that I actually wanted the time with my family more. So I had to like create more desire in my brain for spending time with my kids and being present and being with them and having a day off then there was desire to work. And it took a while of allowing the urge and the discomfort of like knowing there was work out there because there is no place in time as a physician where the work stops. It's not like you achieve some milestone. Like every time you clear your inbox, it's a fact that your inbox is going to fill up again because it's not going to stop. (laughs) Don't keep on coming and keep having things and keep getting tests and keep getting whatever, right? It's a very arbitrary moment in time when your inbox is cleared. But if you can know that you're going to get your work done and know when your fast and focused working time is, and also know that that can't be all of your time, then you can start to be like, okay, I'm going to train my brain to want to do the things I'm doing when I'm in my downtime and then to just work really hard and fast and focused in my working time. And that's how we get it done. Right. Yeah. Well, I love, like, it sounds like, sounds like you really looked at that reality of, you know, and I mean, I'm, I've, I've definitely dealt with this myself of like, when I'm with my kids, I feel like I should be working when I'm working. I feel like I should be with my kids and it's like not feeling like I'm where I should be. And certainly probably more so when I am with my kids thinking, Oh, like, this is not working or like, I need to be, I need to be getting some things done. I need to empty that inbox thing. And like that just being okay with that, like being there and like shifting that, um, that value or that where you're valuing your time. I really like that. And one of the things I'd love to tackle before we finish as like a last point is imposter syndrome. Mm. So it's in, I saw it on your website, like imposter syndrome. That for me is just a fascinating um, part of human existence, as far as I can tell, that imposter syndrome, because it seems so prevalent. So I'd love to know where you look at that, what you do about it, like how you can help people through it. That that to me would be an amazing way to kind of finish it off. <laughs> I love talking about imposter syndrome. So I'm excited. <laughs> okay. So this is my, this is my, what I have come to believe about an imposter syndrome. Okay. Um, I actually kind of hate the idea of looking at imposter syndrome as being like, a a problem or like a thing because studies of, you know, high achieving people, people who are like getting things done in the world show that like 90 some odd percent of people experience imposter syndrome. So like, it's actually probably just normal. (laughs) So, So what I, what imposter syndrome really is, is it's just a series of thoughts that we have about ourselves that create this um, feeling that we are somehow inferior or, you know, uh, we should be ashamed of ourselves or like we're not good enough or we don't fit in, right? And so they create this, um, this feeling that we are alone and that 
things are somehow harder for us or different for us than other people in the world. And so mm-hmm. what happens is that we have these thoughts, we then feel these emotions that we really don't like to feel. And what ends up happening to us is that we like retreat away from things. We go back into the safe cave. We hide from the things that we could do. Mm. We decide like, no, I'm not going to pursue that thing. Like my favorite imposter syndrome story that I like to tell about myself is when I was in my undergrad, I was part of this Western outdoors club and I loved it. I loved it. And I decided one year that I was going to run for vice president of the club. And I wrote this really funny dynamic speech. And then I showed up that night and this guy was like a totally popular, like just like a goofy guy decided he was running too. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just like a self-nomination process, <laughs> right? like really low stakes. But at that point in time, my imposter syndrome I had so many imposter thoughts about myself that it was not low stakes to me at all. And I perceived it to be so threatening that I could lose to this guy who was really popular. And maybe I would have, right? Because he was super popular that I just didn't even put my hand up. So the speech just went to like nowhere land. Oh, wow. It's like what happens when we are struggling with imposter syndrome is we fail in advance. We don't even give ourselves a chance to try the thing we want to try because we're so afraid of feeling the emotions that come with those thoughts. And so the way I approach this with people, right, is, is a couple of things. The when when um researchers, psychology research have studied imposter syndrome, they've discovered that the only thing that seems to help with imposter syndrome. The only intervention is having a mentor who tells someone that they have imposter syndrome too. <laughs> wow. It's like the neutralizer for imposter syndrome to just plain out normalize, right? Like everybody has it. We all feel it from time to time, which means we can't all be imposters. If like 97% of us, okay. like we can't all be imposters, right? We can't all have just like snuck through the door and, you know, gotten in by the skin of our teeth, right? Like clearly it's not true. So what I start to challenge people with when, you know, they, they have a pattern of thinking imposter thoughts and creating this, um, you know, this kind of result of shooting themselves in the foot or like retreating to the safe cave, right? I try to teach people that if, if we believe the imposter thoughts, okay, if we believe them, then we're basically saying like, Everyone in the world who's ever acknowledged our success, who's ever commended mm. us for something we've done is a liar. And we can start to just like ask ourselves, like, do I really believe that everybody in the world is lying to me? Like, what, what's the reason why somebody would do that, right? It's like, we can just start to kind of cast a little doubt on whether these things could be true, right? Like, I love to play with the statistics about it, right? I love to like ask the brain those kind of questions because we give it a problem of starting to unpack whether or not these things could, should really be true, right? They just feel so true and we just accept them at face value so often. But if it's like, if the problem is that we have to stop thinking the thoughts, 
then it feels like we can never get out of our imposter. Yeah. But if instead we can just notice when we're thinking the thoughts, but start to question them a little bit to see if we can cast a little doubt on them, we can just like turn down the dial on the imposter syndrome a little bit so that it doesn't, you know, it's it's not, we're not feeling those emotions as powerfully. So maybe we're less likely to self-sabotage. We're less likely to, you know, throw away the speech. We're yeah. more tolerant of stuff like, well, the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to give the speech and the guy's going to win, right? Like, you know, or maybe I missed the opportunity for the best thing to happen, which was that I would have been the vice president that year, but I never even gave myself the opportunity to do it. Yeah. I really like that approach of like, it's almost like you're looking for evidence that like this can't be true around. I mean, first off, I love the idea of a mentor telling someone that they've had imposter syndrome. And I mean, I love like there's quotes from Maya Angelou. I mean, there's quotes from so many people like um, there was a um, uh, a movie, uh, Finding Joe. I interviewed the director of that movie. And in that movie, there's a scene where Tony Hawk, the best skateboarder alive, is going to do this crazy trick. And he talks about how when he first looked at the ramp he was about to go down, he's like fear washed over me. And I remember that part of the movie really hitting me because I'm like, oh man, like this, if he feels it, Everyone feels it. So yeah, so the imposter syndrome quotes from so many like amazing authors um, helps. And then also just like looking for that, that evidence of like, yeah, all these people who found me, who tell me that I'm good at this or who look up to me for this, they're, are they're all wrong if, uh, if I'm like, if I'm, you know, um, tricking anyone, everyone into thinking I'm good at this or I'm, 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 I'm talented. No, that's really cool. No, I really like that. And I think, um, yeah. And for me, it's, the way I look at it also is like, it's a sign that people care. Like if someone has imposter syndrome, I think it's because they really care about doing a good job. They really care about it. It just manifests itself in that way of, uh Oh, like, what if I'm not good enough? And I loved what you said, failing in advance. Like you're already like, eh, I'm not, it's not going to work. I'm an imposter. Don't try. So like getting over that. Very cool. Really well, unpack those mm-hmm. beliefs, right? That like sign that you care. It's so the, The powerful thing about coaching is we look at what the downstream effects are of the thoughts and feelings that we're having, right? And so when we start to look at the downstream effects, what we typically see is that we don't show up in our best way that like we actually don't perform when we're, when we're in these beliefs and we're feeling these emotions They actually impact our performance. And so if we really care, then what we would do is we would be like, Oh, there it is again. Like it's normal to feel this way. I'm doing something really big and challenging and, you know, a little bit foreign and unfamiliar to me in the world. And it's okay to feel this. It's just happening because I want to do a really good job. But if I let this like take the wheel of my car and drive, it's going to drive me into the lake versus (laughs) if I'm like, I always give this analogy of you have kids too, I know. So you can picture this, right? when your kids were younger, when the toddler was having a temper tantrum, if you didn't put them in the car seat, they would like cover your eyes and you'd drive the car into the lake, right? But if you strap them in the car seat, they can have a temper tantrum and you can might still be feeling a little bit of irritation and like, you know, frustration, reaction to them, but they're safely in the back seat right. and they don't drive the car off the road, right? So like, this is what we can do with our thoughts. We don't have to like delete them, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I wasn't built with a delete button. I don't know why, but, you know, I wouldn't even need to do this job if it was, but like what we can do is we can just say to them, like, quiet down. You're not driving right now. I love it. 
no, no. I like that. That really sounds like like a really presence of mind to identify the thoughts and really just see them for what they are and not let them drive, drive the bus, so to speak. No, very cool. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, so we are about to pause this recording and then we're going to record a masterclass all about money mindset, a topic that I love and I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. So for anyone in the outro, I'll give the website to go check out the, the uh, masterclass if anyone hasn't done that yet. Now, what I want to make sure is everyone knows how to find out more about you and learn more about what you're up to. And so um, the best place to go is to your website to download that guide. Would that be the best spot? Okay. Yeah, for sure. Well, definitely if you're if you're, you know, at all dealing with burnout or you're interested in even, you know, preventing yourself from getting to burnout, um, hop on there, download the guide, jump on my email list because that's where I'm <laughs> recently had <laughs> some trouble with Facebook. I've done most of my stuff on Facebook, but I've recently had some struggles with Facebook with these iOS changes. And so yeah. I'm definitely going to be using my email list a whole lot more to um, sure. get the message out about what I'm up to these days. So uh, so you definitely want to be there. Um, so that's antifragilefmd.com. Antifragilefmd.com. Yes. Yeah. And then um, I do have a Facebook group for female physicians, which I welcome all female physicians into. Um, You can find the link there on my uh, uh, website. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn and they're all the anti-fragile female MD. So yeah, please come and connect with me. I love connecting with female physicians and um, I've helped lots of people with lots of, in lots of, you know, stages of what I like to call the continuum from, um, you know, just sort of starting to notice that maybe things aren't going the way we want them to be to like this compassion fatigue burnout, Um, you know, and then even sometimes when we get further downstream of that into the mental health stuff, if we're well supported with the right team, this, like I said, can be an adjunct to helping us, you know, recover and get back to where we want to be or more than back to where we want to be to get to like the best place we've ever been. Um, Yeah. Awesome. I love it. So great. Thank you so much for joining me. Everyone, make sure you head on over to antifragilefmd.com. Best way to start, get your name, put your name and email address, get your top 10 ways to survive burnout. And then there's all the links there to go connect on Facebook or uh, to follow on Instagram. And yeah, so now we're going to jump on over to that masterclass. Thank you so much for, uh, for being on the show. Thanks. Hey there, thanks so much for having joined me on this episode of the Clean Bill of Wealth. I really appreciate you taking your time and having listened to this episode. Uh, whether you're multitasking, driving, walking the dog, or jogging, really, really appreciate it. As always, feel free to head on over to galenhelpsdocs.com uh, to sign up for the Financial Literacy Challenge and be added to the email list so you'll be the first to know when there's a new episode out or when I've added a new whiteboard video to the series. Also, there you'll see a button if you want to just book some time with me. If you have a big question around finances, you're not sure uh, you're going to find the time to go through the video and the challenge and the workbook, feel free to book a no strings attached call with me. And the last big thing is if you do sign up for the challenge, you will also get access to the masterclass videos that I've started filming with my guests around things like money mindset and how to start a side business quickly and many more to come. So be sure to head on over to galenhelpsdocs.com if you want to check that out. And I will see you on the next episode. Have a great day.